and welcome to The Book Room, a podcast of conversations with writers whose works have contributed to decolonizing literature. My name is Samah Sabawi and I am your host and I'm speaking to you today from my home on Coolin Country in Melbourne. Now the conversation you're going to hear took place over Zoom a while ago with my guest on Wadjuk Noongar Country. I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present and extend my respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners with us today. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal. I'm delighted to share my conversation with photographer, journalist and writer Mohammed Masoud Morsi. We recorded this in November of 2020 as part of a series of webinars presented by APAN, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. And again, we will be joined towards the end of our conversation by next month's guest on the podcast. So be sure to stick around to meet them. Enjoy. Without further ado, uh, it's my honor to introduce today's guest. Mohammed Masoud Morsi is many things. He was a philanthropist. Uh, he's a was was is a photographer. Um, he was a journalist, and now a highly acclaimed author. His fiction and nonfiction works have appeared in Australian and international publications. He has authored three novels and five nonfiction books. His most recent novel, The Palace of Angels, was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier Literary Awards. And just this week, it actually made the shortlist of the Boz Literary Prize. Um, so, Morsi, welcome to the book room and a huge congratulations on making the Boz Prize shortlist. Thank you very much, Samah. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, also a privilege. I'm very honored to be on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being here. Um, you were born to Egyptian parents in Copenhagen. Uh, so they were parents, your, your parents have chosen uh, to immigrate to Copenhagen. And you've lived in between Egypt and Copenhagen for a few years, I believe. And then you've traveled to so many other countries. And now you're settled um, here in Australia. You're coming to us from Perth. Yes. Uh, you live with your son, Zaki. Um, where is home? <laughs> that's a uh, it's a uh, it's um that's a very good question um so it's um home is uh, you know like to take the word of uh, edward said uh, when he said dunya uh, fundu bichi um for me is the world is is really a, a big place for me it's it's open but my home is is um my feeling and my my connection with the land and with the people will always be in Egypt. You know, it will be in especially in Suez. So yeah, it's always it, it's always got that hold on us, the place where we come from. Um, yeah, where the where the connection with the heart and the soul is. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I read in, in your bio that you you've said that you found your calling, maybe not your home, but your calling in places that you described as human wastelands, it's a very uh, poignant description. 
can you expand on that? Um, what is your calling and what are the human wastelands? The human wastelands, um, I think it's very important to understand that for me, it was um, to question the identity of um, both um, my own journey back and forth between two very different cultures um, and, and understanding from, from um, the, the point of view of, of how I felt looking at the world from the Egyptian point of view and then from, um, in a way, the Western point of view and, um, and seeing in the difference of how the, um, the, the difference in, in, in how the human being is perceived. Mm. Um, which I don't want to jump to the stories, but really, which is the first story is about is about the the the, the brotherhood that is is the place I was drawn to. The human wastelands is also the place of love and brotherhood. Uh, but for the the Western, my Western background, that was not the brotherhood. That was the the wasteland. Mm. Uh, does that make sense? In a way, it does. So you're you're saying, is this is this more about how the West views, um, for the most part, really the countries where we come from, Palestine, Egypt, as um, the people who live in developing nations in general, um, as as disposable as um, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Dehumanizing to that extent that they become the human wasteland. Yes, but also to ourselves, you know, like, um, I, you know, we've I've been part of, like, listen to a lot of, uh, especially Zoom talks as well. And, and you know, mm -hmm. something that I believe also on social media and in, and in general, people discuss the, the, the Arab identity and the, the identity of the West versus the, what we identify with as the West. Um, versus what we identify as the Arab world. And in that, in that upbringing in the Arab world was a brotherhood and a love that really has slipped out of our hands. We're seeing that in the way that the Arab governments now have separated from the, the people. Um, yeah. And in, in that, the wasteland also became the, the, the longing, my own longing for this, this very strong connection of uh, a, a tribe across the idea of nations in the Arab world. And, and these themes are really strong in your book. And I think that's what makes it so attractive um, is, is there's the friendship, the, the friendship bond in, in, in all the three um, novel, in, in all the three stories that you tell in your um, trilogy. Um, is really at the, the foundation of it is the friendship. People are doing crazy things, um, not necessarily for the land as, 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 a, as, as understood in the Western uh, context of ownership, but for, for home, for family, for, for um, belonging, for security. Um, and they're, they're doing so much for each other. And I think that that comes out so clearly in your writing. Um, but before we, we really get into your book, and I'd love to do that, um, having, having these multiple um, uh, identities, in a sense, um, having lived in Copenhagen and in Africa and in, in 
in Egypt and now in Australia, it makes you a, a bridge in a way, it, it, because you're extending yourself from one, one culture to another. But also being a journalist um, is the job of bridging. You're telling, you're, you're transporting an idea or you're transporting news from one area to another. And I'm just curious, you know, what is the role of journalists in a war zone? Because you were in a war zone and that's what inspired this book. You're, you experienced Gaza with the bombs falling. Um, and so what, what is the role of a journalist? Is it just to tell the story or is there always a motivation that goes beyond the job of just conveying a story? Um, the motivation to stop the destruction, the motivation to be being a tool for positive, positive change, whatever that is. And how do you navigate or reconcile your duty to tell a story um, and your moral obligation to be an active agent in making change happen? How, how do you work with that as a journalist? Okay, let me start with the, the beginning. Um, the, the first question, uh, what is the moral obligation of the journalist? Um, I believe strongly the moral obligation of the journalist, uh, journalist is to humanize the, um, the dehumanization of, of war and also to write what the truth is and to share the stories of people in a way that people can connect with other people. Um, and in being this bridging between two cultures, going to uh, Gaza, talking to people in Arabic, um, and then taking this and writing this with, I'm, I want to say an, a, a different heart than a Western journalist because the, the, the bridging happens is I am walking into homes and I am talking to people like family, um, which, which is, is a very different scenario than just reporting on. It's for me, the obligation was to step away from all this talk about who's doing what and because everything is so gray, you know, it's, it's very difficult if you're in a place to, to describe or to find who's doing what wrong. It's, it's actually easier to find who's doing what right. And when you see the acts of humanity, when everything is crazy, you know, like I'm talking very, very crazy, um, and you hear the the dreams and hopes of people when everything is crazy and you realize in this devastation there is a truth of of our you know our desire to belong to each other as a as an entity and especially for uh, for the reporting from us was um, the, the connection for me was the connection with the people in understanding their sense and, and, and wishes to, to feel that the, that the Arab world was hearing them as brothers and sisters and not just as yet another, you know, um, and, and this very wrong use of words, you know, like clashes and conflicts and 
mm. us versus them and all these false dilemmas that the especially the western media loves to 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 push into the air because it confuses the reader so for me the the truth was to take the 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 human stories and to listen to people when they say this is what i'm dreaming about this is what i want right now and what why why is this happening when there is there is no reason for this to happen i did not choose this someone else is choosing this ask the right questions you know and i think that's the most important thing for a journalist is ask the right questions mm-hmm. don't talk about who's on this side and who's on that but ask the right question why does one side not want peace with the other side because the side being bombed definitely did not want to keep the war you know how long how long were you in in gaza for was that for the war 2014 2014 uh, uh August September and then again November and then at the beginning of 2015 was the last time. And how much of the stories you've written describing the war how much of this in the that you've written in the book how much of this you've actually experienced and seen how much of it is truth because it it reads and and some I can't remember who the reviewer is who wrote this um and I just shook my head because it 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 resonated with me it reads like um like journalism but but it's not it's it is it is um it is a story it is a story that 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 captivates you and you want to read it till the end but it's written with so much clarity so how much of this was truth i i i there is a lot of truth in it I don't know how I can rate how much is how much um I think you have to if you read and you uh connect with the reading uh, like you're saying so um I think you have to take if every word is true for you then every word is true for you then I have succeeded in what I wanted to do is is channel these stories in a way that is not a new story but at the same time is a new story if you understand what i mean because the difference um so for example the the story 22 years to life which is the middle story so so yes they're all based on true stories um Um, and and i i spoke to you at a point about um especially why the story was written because this was written as a to begin with as a feature article and uh, and uh, on on a debriefing i saw this um article i was standing outside of uh, a fish shop in copenhagen because it was a danish newspaper and a danish also a danish ngo i was uh, reporting for at the time um and um so but this was a freelance uh, feature for uh, a national danish newspaper and um and i looked by chance i could have been a million other places uh, but i looked at this um story this real story of real people of terrible heartache and not just that it's it's something that I believe the story is is in a way is 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 such a description of of this 
difference between how, if, if this has happened, if, if what had happened in, for example, 22 years to life, if this happened in Sydney or in Europe or anywhere else, um, the, the, there would not be this, you know, the world wouldn't be quiet. You know, let, we, we all know this, you know, it's, and uh, in this was the question was to watch something you've written be used the, the following day, the next day being wrapped around a fish. Like you're watching, not just the story, you're watching uh, 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 the, the life, the, 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 the testimony of someone going through a war. And I don't think most people understand what this means, you know, is, is being literally wrapped and thrown away. So there was some something in my soul that said I have to take this 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 idea of journalism as reporting the truth seemed to have stopped with this now with this corporatization of media and you know there are still outlets but we're we're in this very divided space now where literature offers a way to connect the truth with what can live for a very long time and inspire people to real change. Um, wow. I think this is, um, I wasn't planning to ask you to do the reading from the excerpt until a little bit later on. So we're gonna change the order because this is a good time to read that story that you're talking about because that's the excerpt you've chosen, right? Are, are you, do you need a minute? No, I'll set the scene for this. Um, I've got the so door. This is, is um, House of Angels, and it's a trilogy. This is the second story, the excerpt that we're going to listen to, and that was the story that Mercy was just talking about, being wrapped in the fish market, used as wrapping for fish. So, um, <clears throat> Uh, in 23 Years to Life, there is um, uh, the main character, um, um, Farida and Fathay is a couple that, um, and this is a true story. They spent um, 22 years of their life trying to have a child, um, you know, and um, miraculously they had, they get this child. Um, where we are in the story at this point is that, um, the main character um, with his friend, um, um, are, uh, um, are, um, he is going to meet his friend, Muhammad, um, who lives in near, uh, near Rafah. Rafah. Um, and in this place, um, he, he comes to him um, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a part in the story where um, through these stories, I, I am, I'm, following kind of the, you know, the, the way of life as it's true, you know, that's a truth in the stories that is, that is not a truth in the, maybe in the story itself, but it's, it's in the truth in the way that life is lived in the Arab world. So uh, Fatih is, um, uh, is on his way. Uh, he goes to, he's knocking on the door to Muhammad, his friend. And they, there's a flashback there. And he, he recalls, he tells the reader of what's happening 
with his um, with his friend's life and his friend's life. Let me start. <clears throat> I heard voices behind the door as I leaned my head on it. I knocked and waited. Four large bolts were shifted with a heavy metallic sound. Muhammad's wife, Sara, eventually opened it and sent me a big smile before swallowing the last bit of food in her mouth. Muhammad, come and have a look, she said, as she turned her head away from me. What? Who is it? Do you really want me to get up? Can't they hear we're eating? Muhammad spoke back loudly, clearly with his mouth full of food, clearly agitated. Clearly agitated. Uh, just come and look, she said, walking away from the door. I remained standing there. Muhammad held the food back behind a strongly muffled voice as he tried to exclaim his joy at seeing me. He put his hand up like an upside down flower, still not open, signaling me to wait a second while he swallowed. He extended his right arm to me with the hand bent downwards as it was greasy. I took it and he dragged me in. The smell of roasted chicken filled the air and I smiled. It's the day, day, it's the day of the chickens, I loudly pronounced as I took his arm and we kissed each other twice on both cheeks and looked each other in the eyes. I asked him how he was. Alhamdulillah, Fatih, he said, smiling, and returned the question. Alhamdulillah, Muhammad, alhamdulillah, I replied with a smile. It's the only thing we can do to be grateful to Allah. Yalla, come join us. Sara, prepare for Ustaz Fatihi. Muhammad's voice shook the air like a drum. May Allah bless you, Muhammad. But I must get back to Farida soon, and she's making me chicken, I think, I said laughing. Muhammad was a tall and handsome man. His eyes were like honeycomb on fire, his hair pitch black in contrast. His skin was colored like rye, and his beard, as black as the rest of his hair, followed the lines of his square cheeks. Sarah was Muhammad's second wife. wife. Zainab, his first wife, was killed when the taxi she and the children were in stopped at a jam-packed intersection. It was rush hour. Kids were crossing the streets in all directions. Young men hastily trying to sell handkerchiefs or washing windscreens as the cars came to a standstill. An Israeli F-16 fighter jet with a pilot that followed orders without question had already locked in on the car right next to them and pushed the button. In the time it would have taken the missile to ignite, flight, fly through the air, reach the car and explode, Zainab and their two sons, Abdel Halim and Haidar, would only just have managed to look out the window and chase the roar of the fighter jet. Then it was all over. The explosion created a large hole in the street and in it, the car that had carried a family of four, not some prominent military figure, had been turned into a mesh of shrapnel and body parts. The other cars had been crushed against each other and the carnage suggested that of a human slaughterhouse. Flying glass had cut into scores of people and although most survived, those surrounding the bullseye were immolated. I had to get four other men to help Muhammad to the ground and we tied him up against the lamppost, screaming and kicking until I had removed his children. Words failed to describe the silent conversation I had with death when I removed the two six-year-old twin boys who were left frozen in an incinerated pose of shielding themselves. Both Haida and Abdel Halim were in their first week of school and had been carrying their little plastic backpacks. The explosion had melted the bags onto their skin and turned their clothes into ash. Haida was still warm, charred beyond recognition. 
I knew it was him because he was the one with the large appetite. He was stiff and his skin felt hard and brittle under my fingertips. A man from the Red Crescent helped as we wrapped both of them in towels to be taken to Zeynep's parents. I went back to Muhammad, who tied to the lamppost looked like a crazy animal, foaming mouth, kicking legs and twisting body, screaming at me with his mighty voice to let him loose, threatening to kill me if I didn't. I got on my knees, unable to stop shaking and looked him in the eyes. I tried to utter something, just one word, but nothing came out. Muhammad fell to sobbing as he stared back at me, tears running from his eyes. I went around his back and untied him. He got up and straggled his way towards the taxi. Several men surrounded him, some wanting to stop him, some telling the others to wait and let him be. I didn't move. I watched my childhood friend try to lift the body of his beloved Zeynep out of the car, only to have her tear apart like a paper mache Katrina with war pulp bursting out from inside. The following day, Muhammad tried to touch Haider and Abdul Halim, but every time he came close, he stopped an inch away from their black bodies as if trying to find a place to lay his strong hands without hurting them. Instead, he prayed a single prayer, kissed the bodies of both his sons gently on the forehead, whispered something in Zeynab's ear and stroked what was once her face with the back of his hand running, like running a feather on soft skin. He didn't shed a single tear. He rose like a lion standing upright and then fainted to the ground. We buried his family in a silence of low muffled prayers. Thank you for um, reading that. Um, I read, I actually read your book because I'm a blatant for punishment. <laughs> I've read it several times. Um, I think what really gets you is that you've read for us this really emotional part, but there's also happy parts. There are parts of um, falling in love and getting to know each other and the joy of having a child before you go through this experience. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a roller coaster. And then the last knowledge, uh, the last story in the trilogy um, throws you kind of off balance because the first, and maybe I should just have you give a, a quick overview of the first, the second and the third story. But I just found that the third story was um, almost um, it was totally unexpected because, because of all the anger, because of all the hurt in the first two stories, um, that we could talk about love and that kind of love between an Israeli and Palestinian um, in a world that is in, in such a, a crazy setup. Um, so I, I want you to maybe give a very quick summary of the three stories and then I'm going to ask you some more questions and we've, I believe we have a lot of questions as well coming in right now from um, so um, so the first story what's past is dead uh, um, I'm I'm not going to talk about what the story is about 
um, I'm, I'm going to talk about what's an allegorial. Uh, it's it, because the first story is a prequel, really. Um, it's what it is, is, is the journey of that brotherhood and the loss of that brotherhood um, that especially the Palestinian people have experienced because no one else in the Arab world has been longing for, um, Edward Said spoke lots about this, of, of the Palestinian people needing to rely on themselves. Um, but in my growing up in the Arab world, that brotherhood still lived and was very much alive and was, you know, was part of the story of uh, a unity of people, you know, across nations and across different cultures within one big umbrella called the Arab world. Um, and that's the first story. It's a short little story, but it's, it goes also and it connects with young men in that strong bond of brotherhood and love that go and trade guns for uh, drugs for guns to help their brothers and sisters in Gaza. Um, and that I wanted with that to set a scene for the reader that was really depending also I was you know depending who is reading this will have very different associations. I, I think you would have experienced that. Um, and then the second story is so one is this you know confusion of identity let me confuse you with all this identity this is what we're doing and then the second story is loss and love because in the palestinian life these two are like this you know love and loss and i want to this story this true story is was in tears and in in this to to have um, it's a story that brings the humanity back in this dehumanized context of discussing Palestine and bringing it back to people right on the ground. This is what goes on. You know, these are part of the stories. You know, these are the people that live there. You know, and that's the story of two people falling in love. That's what life looks like. Exactly. And also going abroad, trying to have a child, all this stuff, you know. And then comes this war, you know, this, not war, but massacre, you know, because it's not war. You know, you can't talk of war. It doesn't really come out of nowhere either. It's it's brewing. Yeah. There's a, there's, there's a sense um, when you're reading it, there's a sense of la hawla la quwata illa billah. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense of, you know, here it comes. Yeah, and this is this there's is really no the bewilderment. There's no shock. Oh my God, they're dropping bombs on us. No, no, no. no. Everyone no knows that they can hear it. They can hear yeah. the radio. Yeah, yeah. There's really no how question how it's like in, of the inhumanity of it. There's just this. We're dealing with it. Yeah. So. Um, and and not only in people are as are dealing with the Israelis bombing, but they're also dealing with this this situation that has locked them in, you know, like in between Hamas on one side and the Israelis on the other, you know. Yeah. Two people playing a chess game, they're in the middle. 
but they sense it, you know, they sense all these little things happening left, right, center, and they're not wrong. You know, they know it, it comes, boom, and it happens. And then the dichotomy from love to then loss, and then what that does to people. Because I don't think, this is also the problem with the journalism, is that the media doesn't allow the mourning to be displayed. You know, the Palestinian people are not allowed to be mourning on television. When the Israeli soldier dies, we see the mourning, we see the mother crying, we see the, the picture of the girlfriend and the dog and everything. But when the people were dying in Gaza, we're talking two and a half thousand people, you know, 500 of their children, you know, families were going through, looking for their dead children, through children. None of this is shown. The, so this is to understand the anger, I wanted to put it in the content of this true story. This is what happens when you take some life, something so unimaginable for most people. If I imagine someone taking Zaki away in that form, I would do exactly the same as Fatih. I'll leave the reader to read what he does. And then in the third story is, yes, two people who are supposed to be enemies. It's not unheard of. There are lots of Palestinians and Israelis that fall in love. It's actually not that uncommon, but it's, it's not spoken about because it's something that shakes the foundation of where we place our identity. So we go back to the first story, you know, it, it binds actually back to that because in that, because this story affected me a lot as well, because it shook my idea of what is actually possible and how we place our focus. You know, if we place all our energy on everything that is wrong and everything that is on a very, very high level of day, of understanding on the daily life, we fail to realize all the potential that is to shift the narrative to a very, what some people would call even utopian. But when you see it with your own eyes, you realize it's not utopian, it's a choice. Yeah. And the choice is not in the people's hands. So this story of two people falling in love under the most, and in the reality of the circumstances of what people do in checkpoints and of how, how degrading yeah, and, and, you know, the, anyone who's seen the, you know, um, the, the, the occupation in real life, you know, the, uh, Melissa Park had the, the video where she, with the Ezra Said Memorial, where um, she goes through witnessing the, the occupation with your own eyes is a very, very different experience than witnessing the occupation through the television. Because the, through the television, it is this, you know, this theater of us versus them and all this blah blah you know but in the reality you see the, the 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 humiliation the treatment of people worse than dogs you know um, sorry let me restrain myself that's very good um i just got nudged <laughs> that oh, we have sorry. to start reading the questions so we okay. got some questions um so from let me just have a look here so from Ray, I think it's more of a comment. Um, Muhammad Salam, uh, this is actually a political question, um, asking about the Egyptians' uh, attitude towards Palestinians and what would you like these attitudes to be at the 
leadership and at the people level, I guess. Because there you spoke about the the vast the vast differences between uh, or the disconnect between the leadership and um, on the street. Salam first. <laughs> now I'm I'm not going to speak for the Egyptian government. That would get me in trouble. Very more, wise. That would already get me in. <laughs> um, but let me speak from my own point of view, not as an Egyptian, not as an Australian, not as a Danish person, not as, as a human being. I think um, it's not just the Egyptian government. I think, I think the question also comes, we know how much the Egyptian government have had an influence in, in, in the Palestinian question, especially with Gamal Abdel Nasser and and that story with the PLO and, and all this. But this is a very long time ago. And I think it's very important to understand one thing. Um, it's not really important what I would like because this is, this is not about me. This is, um, this is, this is what the attitude. This is not even about attitude. This is about a clear, we've, um, I think, you know, I was actually tweeting to you about this just earlier today. Um, about the, the, like Edward Said said as well, and I'm sorry if I'm quoting him a lot today, but um, he did say that the Palestinians must seriously try to rely on themselves to find their voice. The asking of whether the attitude of the Egyptian government or the Lebanese government, or the Israeli or the Saudi, you know, like even just today, there was the question of whether the Saudis has met with the Israelis and what Qatar is doing and what Emirates is doing and, and all this stuff is, is actually connected to this old idea that these Arab brothers of governments are going to come and help the Palestinians. I think if we look at the world today, just with a human eye, that we have to come now to the conclusion that the human rights, talking about international law, talking about human rights, when it is so clear that so many governments are now have never really, yeah. really wanted to accept them as part of their base you know the Palestinian people are not saying I want a country and I want to push all the Israelis out and I, all this what actually what most Palestinians are saying I want to just live in dignity and raise my head and walk through the street and not being killed and not being thrown out of my own home and have a right to just have my own four walls and a roof you know like just a basic very basic need but this goes back to the human rights and the human rights were based on man making the decision, us as human beings towards each other, not God. But we are now in a, in a world where we have very extreme right-wing in the US, very extreme right-wing in Israel, and also in the Arab world, governments that are actually very conservative and very religious. I would like to see yeah. cross-Arab spring and you intifada. Okay, so you've heard it here, guys. Morsi is calling for another Arab Spring. No, serious. <laughs> um, I'm gonna ask you the next question uh, from Talia. It's a really interesting one. It, humanizing war is a strange, contradictory idea. It's not a question, she's making uh, a point. 
but I don't, you know, so are you, are you humanizing war in writing these books? Let's just say. No, there's, there's no humanizing of war. I am, I am giving the human stories because war in itself is a dehumanizing experience. You know, it's, it's, we don't need to have war. You know, these wars are, um, these are not wars even, these are massacres. In, in, in Gaza, it's not a war, it's a massacre. You know, um, I'm not humanizing war. I am, I am putting the human in the context of the war because in the context of journalism, the war has become us versus them. And that's a false dilemma psychologically. It's a, it's a very false dilemma. It's, it's, it removes all sorts of connections. It removes any sort of humanity. And it becomes, we have to take a, a view, a standpoint. I'm either with the Palestinians or I'm with the Israelis, which is, is total bogus because it's not, it's, it's very simple. The question is very simple. It's why is one side not wanting peace with the other? So it's not humanizing war, it's humanizing the human beings that don't get a chance to be humans in the picture of the war. All right, um, question from Sarah. Do you see a correlation between journalism and storytelling in um, a novel or creative writing sense? And how does it relate to cultural modes of relaying information? Actually, this is a question from Lara. Sorry, <laughs> just reading my notes. So do you see a correlation between journalism and storytelling um, in, in a novel or in a creative sense of writing? Where's the correlation? A very hard question to answer. Um, I don't know if I see them separate uh, or, or like. I mean, journalists are storytellers uh, for the most part, especially journalists, foreign correspondents. They're they're looking for stories to tell about the places that they're in. Um, but novel is is fiction, so. You've managed to put. Yeah, but I think I un I understand the question. But it's a little bit hard to uh, to reply to because it's a very personal question in a way. Um, I think no, but I think I believe if we if we allow our imagination to play into the the truth of a story, I think we connect more with the humanity behind the story. So mm -hmm. that means that the two is correlated in this way, then that's the way I'm using it. I'm not sure if this answers the question. So it's a, it's a very philosophical question in a way. It will have to do because we have so many other questions. Um, question from Sarah. Uh, no, sorry. Question from Randa Abdel Fattah. Uh, your book is tremendous in so many ways. I'm interested in your writing process. What did writing a book like this do to you each time you sat down and you wrote a scene? How did you heal each time? Protect your psyche and emotional health, even time you sat down, every time you sat down and so vividly portrayed suffering, trauma, and injustice. It's a very good question. How did you Thank you, Rhonda, for this. It's a very good question. Um, um, 
it's also a very personal question. Um, um, I I don't I don't know if um, if it's the you know the healing comes in praying a prayer for those I am writing about in the connections I have in the in the communication I have with people um, that have been so uh, I am honored for them to have allowed me also to share these stories in a way that I have done. Um, in that comes the healing, but I am, every time I wrote, I also hope that, that this would be healing for those I was writing about. And in that way, that brought me healing. Knowing that we are in this life doing something that matters somehow, not for just me, but for someone else that is, I am connected to on a, on a level and a spiritual level that I cannot comprehend with words or ideas, but I know exists in my heart. So that healings, when I sat and wrote this, I believe there was a healing voice, not just for me, but for the other side as well. In knowing that, that, you know, this life be true, you know, that we're not just doing these things. We, we want to go through this life and actually make a difference, you know, and, and change something for, for hopefully someone else's children further away. That was the healing. You know, the, um, I hope that answers the question. It's a very, it's a very good question. Um, and not, not one I have a direct answer to. Uh, Thank you for this answer and thank you, Rhonda, for the question. I'm just uh, aware of the time, so I apologize if there are any other questions coming in, but we do have to move on to the next segment, which is the great author reveal. As I promised, I would like to reveal to you our next guest in the book room. Drum roll, please. Um, our next guest is the brilliant Tony Birch. He is the author of three novels, the best-selling novel, The White Girl, winner of the 2020 New South Wales Premiers Award for Indigenous Writing and shortlisted for the 2020 Miles Franklin Literary Prize. Ghost River, winner of the 2016 Victorian Premiers Literary Award for Indigenous Writing and Blood, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award in 2012. He's also the author of Shadow Boxing and three short story collections, Father's Day, The Promise and The Common People. In 2017, he was awarded the Patrick White Literary Award for his contribution to Australian literature. In 2021, he will uh, release two new books, a poetry book, Whisper Songs, and the new short story collection, Dark As Last Night. Both books will be published by University of Queensland Press. Wow. Tony, thank you. Thank you for thank you for thank you very much. It's good to be here, and um, I really enjoyed the talk, Morsi, and and the conversation. I think it was just wonderful. Um, listening to both of you, you talk. It. Um, I often try to think that as a writer, I I try to um, sort of undermine my own belief that we have responsibilities. But as I listened to you talk, I I was just constantly aware of the responsibilities we do have to each other. And I think um, something that I always value, and that is the, 
the wonderful relationship between um, a writer and a reader, which of course is the um, is the ultimate um, joy of being a writer, is, is that you you're respected by readers and that um, your yeah, readers take you seriously. Even readers, of course, who who might be critical of your work and. I know that both of you and many of your guests, sorry, your audience are, are working in areas where there can be really contentious discussion. And, you know, th thinking about this while I was listening to the conversation, I always used to say to my students when I taught writing, you, you, you're entitled to consider that you're writing for a, an intelligent reader. And I don't mean, you know, sort of, a normal sort of discussion of intelligence, but someone that understands your your emotional intelligence, that understands, as we've spoken about, your moral responsibility, and that even when we write stories where there may be confronting truths um, for, for people who don't want to face the truth, we, we hope that we um, engage readers who who take out this uh, how, take our work very seriously, and um, obviously that's what she is doing. Um, so just um, just to say that I'm very, very um, privileged to have been able to listen tonight and, of course, then to be the, the next writer. Um, apparently, you take December off. Um, um, so we're coming to you at the end of January. And what I'll be doing, I think, I've, I've been told, is that I'll be talking about my book, The White Girl. Um, yeah. <laughs> the White Girl is, is my most recent book, so that that came out. Um, last year in June, um, it's been a for me a very successful book in the sense that um, one of the things I'm so happy about with this book is it's being taught already um, in schools at tertiary level, both in Australia and overseas. But I, I'm very pleased of the reception of the book. Um, um, yeah, most of your readers are non-Aboriginal people, but um, I've been very pleased at the reception from Aboriginal people, particularly older women, because. This book is about an old Aboriginal woman, um, Odette Brown and her granddaughter, Sissy. And a bit like, I suppose, yeah, I was, I was very interested in, in Morsi's response. And, and I, I say this with great respect, not being really able to answer that question of the difference between you know, journalistic writing or nonfiction and fiction and the way that people try to, to divide these categories of writing up and I think essentially as writers, whatever genre we're working in, there is there is something at the heart of our work. And I think it's um, trying to make sense of the world, um, trying yeah. to understand the world through writing. So um, of course, that's what I'll be, I'll be talking about, the way that I use the white girl. And, and as people who know me know that I was actually um, a lecturer in history um, for many years before I did any writing so that I've also published in different genres. And the reason that I chose um, fiction in this way is similar to what Morsi was saying and that idea of seeing your journalistic work get wrapped up in a, um, you know, the newspaper wrapped up in, in fish the day after it's published is that I did similarly think I wanted to write a story that ha had real people at its heart that had really strong characters at its heart. And um, that's why I chose fiction for this book also. Well, we're very lucky that you have written um, these beautiful books. I absolutely loved The White Girl and I loved Odette and I felt like she was part of my family. Um, I, I loved the relationship with Sissy and really learning so much about the, the history um, in a way that didn't, it didn't 
come across as preachy. You were not trying to teach us anything. You were just telling us a beautiful story. And so um, I'm really honored that you will be our guest and everyone go out there and, and get a copy of The White Girl so you can join the conversation and, um, and ask uh, Tony any questions that you need to ask. It is a beautiful book um, and you will absolutely love it. Can I just, um, can just, say, one thing? Can I just say one thing? And this is yeah, another, I'm again hearing Morsi read that um, heart rendering piece. I think what I'd like people to think about, and if, if you join the conversation, is I think there's something very similar to the Palestinian situation here, and that is we have lived under what I would call the absurdity of, of, of colonialism. Um, so you talked about, you know, you talk about Aboriginal identity legislation and legislation to remove children, legislation to take country. It's a surreal, mad, absurd world that we live in. And um, yeah. We talk about Aboriginal people who have often lived with categories of identity that created 60, 60 different identities for Aboriginal people across Australia. So you don't even know who you are from one day to the next, bureaucratically speaking. So I think that the, the terrible situation that Palestinian people have found themselves in, I can't begin to understand at all the, the terror that people live under, but the, the absurdity, contradiction, hypocrisy of being... Um, colonize people in that way I know very well so I hope people will join us and get some sense of the the, the similarities in our situation well it is absolutely our honor that you're going to be there and um, this will be around at the time of uh, invasion day so it's going to be a significant uh, time for us to to have you as our guest our special guest I'm afraid we are coming toward an end. We don't want to end this because this is really interesting and I would go on forever, but we have to uh, wrap this up. Um, so um, we will leave you with another excerpt from Muhammad Masoud Morsi's book, The Palace of Angels. Uh, but before that, I want to thank everyone for joining in today. Uh, I want to express my gratitude for the producers, Jessica Morrison and Lara Week. Thanks to my social media and PR guru, Lara Shamas, for the work that she does. Thank you, APAN. Uh, thank you, Tony, for popping in. And, um, and thank you for agreeing to join us in the next episode. Thank you, Morsi, for your time and your talent um, and for being our guest today. So over to you, Morsi, to set the scene and to leave us with an excerpt from your book. Thank you. Thank you, Samah. Before I start, I just want to say thank you to you, especially, and thanks to everyone in the audience and all your kind comments and for being here with us tonight. It really means a lot to me. And thank you, APAN, of course, and Jessica and the lovely crew for all your good work. I'm very honored and uh, privileged, privileged to be have been on this. Um, I'm going to read um, the last um, uh, excerpt which um, Samah has chosen and I think it's a very good choice. Um, this is <clears throat> uh, from the last story um, and um, uh, it's in the beginning of the story and um, it's a little short um, uh, place where Adnan, the main character, uh, des de describes, uh, goes back and talks of his uh, childhood. And then I will leave you with this. <clears throat> I 
I was I was someone else that day, <clears throat> someone other than who I am today. What endures are dreams and nightmares from a past life, a clutch of memories that keep calling me, nagging me. I took the risk of a new life, albeit one which was more promising than the one I was living. I took a leap of faith into the unknown and the unknown set me free. My life began on a hot late summer evening in the village of Budrus in the now occupied West Bank of Palestine. My mother wasn't expecting my arrival just yet. She went into labor while visiting a childhood friend. I opened my eyes the moment my face revealed itself to the world and scared the midwife so much she let out a scream that startled my mother and I shot out like a rocket, or so she told me. I was born on the 29th of August, 1987. This same day, the Palestinian cartoonist Najil Ali died. Amidst the blur of the early years, the circles in my mother's eyes were magical as was the ever blue sky behind them. They were my first memory. They're expanding and contracting. They're shining in happiness. As my eyes began to focus, they became my haven and a place where I looked for answers. The movement <clears throat> of the circles spoke to me as they dilated or shrank, as they searched her inner universe for answers to my questions. The world appeared in circles to me, from those on my mother's breasts to that of the single light bulb above my bed, shining so brightly it left a halo in the far corners of my eyes. It remained as the light, lights went out, traveling in waves further and further towards the center. I'd try everything to see where the halo would go out, but I never made it and fell asleep with the pulsating blue of it in the black of my eyes. Both my mother and my father held me close, their heartbeats beacons of the world. When the tempo rose, I studied their faces and how they reacted. I turned to see what or who was causing the galloping in their chests. I'd watch them, the way they spoke, acted, the way their eyes flickered and how they watched me. I'd listen to the change in my parents' voices and I'd touch or press myself closer to them. As soon as the danger had passed, as soon as the angry voices had given up, as soon as they had let us pass, I'd listen and feel the change. My father's heartbeat would relax back into a safe something. My mother's would linger on, rising and falling as she'd kiss and caress me. And I'd keep staring at her, keep waiting for the moment she'd face me, the moment I would feel safe myself in her circles of magic. <clears throat> I turned six to a world full of anger and hatred. Running home from school on my birthday, I found a street on fire. Car tires were burning and rocks were ready, piled in moons, mounds as ammunition. A barricade had been set against the occupation forces. One of the armored bands came in and out of sight through the black smoke. I recognized Bilal, one of my cousins. His body looked that, like that of a fighter, lean and strong. He wore the black and white checkered kufiya, wrapped around his head that left only his fierce eye, fiery eyes visible. He was passionate about the Intifada. <clears throat> the Palestinian uprising, and with his head held high, he spoke of how we would one day be free to walk the earth of our own homeland, to be equal to the Jews whom we once upon a time lived peacefully with. I looked up to him as if he were the gladiator of justice, although at the time that word was confined to a deeply embedded gut feeling of creating something much better for myself than what life had given me. I had become used to this sight, burning tires, stones in the street, and Palestinian flags being waved against Israeli soldiers who are armed to the teeth. 
There were times when that world would disappear. I once caught a frog, a frog so small it fitted into my already small child-sized hands. I remember, remembered it made soft croaks and looked at me pleadingly, turning the world into a magical tale. I carried it around all day, showed it to my friends and had conversations with it. Finally, my mother ordered me to return it to where I had found it. At the end of the day, together with my best friend, Ali, I let it go. It disappeared into a moist patch of grass near an old olive tree, and with it, the beauty of the wonder of life. The sounds and images that filled my days and my dreams returned quickly, but I never forgot how that frog stopped, how it looked at me for the last time before it vanished back into its own world. Or perhaps it was me who looked at the frog and it merely wondered why I had chosen to set it free. It wasn't, I wasn't far behind the men when the Israeli van turned and faced them sideways. A small, a small steel flap was opened and a rifle appeared. The men threw themselves to the ground as several rounds were fired. The bullets penetrated smoke, tires, and eventually flesh. Two shots went through Bilal. One through his chest, close to his heart, the other one straight through his heart. The bullets kept going, reached me, and continued through my, my thigh. I fell to the ground with blood soaking my brand new school uniform, thinking I was on fire. The inferno that spread throughout my body turned into a warm blanket on which, under which I drifted off to sleep. As I closed my eyes, I saw the van take off at great speed, shaking off the young men who had climbed on top of it as others pounded, pounded it with rocks in their hands. People rushed, rushed towards me as everything faded into gray. I was taken to the local clinic and I survived. Thank you for being with us today in The Book Room. Next month, I'll be speaking with Tony Birch about his award-winning new book, The White Girl. I hope you can join us. The Book Room is presented in partnership with APAN, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, a united national voice advocating for justice and peace for Palestinians. Thank you to Jessica Morrison and Sarah Saleh from APAN for all their work producing the webinar where this conversation was recorded. The Book Room is produced by Lara Week and myself, Sama Savawi. Technical production is by Justin Coe. Our artwork and social media are by Lara Shamas and Nahid Ilreis composed the music for the show. You can follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at the Book Room with Sama Sabawi. Our website is www.inthebookroom.com and there you can find show notes from today's episode and links to purchase all the books that we've been talking about today. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It helps others to find us and is so very much appreciated. Until next time, thank you.